0: Hi, this is Chris Sizemore and you're listening to the Stronger Than podcast. I have Allie McCatherine with me today. She's an incredible human, one of my very best friends. She's also an amazing textile artist, um, a wife and a mom, and just this super cool person who I'm very excited to introduce you to today. We both kind of met at the apex of our tragedies.
1: Hi, thank you, Chris. Um, yeah, I never that never occurred to me before, but we were very much at the At the height of both of our tragedies. About a month before my youngest son, Jack was born. My husband was laid off from his job, which put us into this huge spot of stress to begin with. And then my very first indication that something was not right with Jack was as I was giving birth to him, it was very noticeable to me that his head was extremely large. And after he came out, a bunch of the nurses were commenting and saying, wow, his head is really, really big. And Which is exactly, it's yeah. what you want
0: your nurse to say. Yeah.
1: Right. Like, I, <laughs> I know. Thank you. I was there. Uh, was very aware of that. But then about a week later at our pediatrician checkup, she looked really concerned. And she told me very gently that it was really important for us to go get an x ray. And I said, Oh, like, you mean maybe in a week or a couple weeks from now? And she said, No, today. And that was the first time that I really felt that like gut punch of fear. The next day, uh, I remember I was sitting in my chair in my bedroom and on the phone with the pediatrician, who I'm so grateful to for the level of care that she took with me because she was so completely empathetic and gentle really is the word I keep coming back to when she said this is really a thing that he has he's going to need surgery for it and there's no way around it the thing that he had is called sagittal craniosynostosis and it meant that the plates of his head were prematurely fused in babies' heads they've got these plates that are not fused and that's means that they're able to overlap um, as they're being born. And then it all sort of resettles and it needs to not be fused as they grow because they grow so very quickly, their head needs to be able to expand. And those plates typically are not completely fused until they're six years old.
0: And you had him completely naturally, yeah? Completely naturally,
1: zero medication. Like, is Um, a
0: testament to who you are and your strength on its own. Like, that's incredible. The whole idea during birth is that their plates and their head are still malleable. They're not fused. Right. They kind of squid. It's like why babies have pointy heads. This is a thing right. that we see. That is a normal part of the birthing process. And this was not normal. Right. Um, which is incredible and, yeah. that you were able to do that on its own, which I think you'd said before that the doctors even said, like, how did you have this baby naturally? Yeah,
1: they were, they were all shocked. Like every time I was filling up paperwork later and it would be like, how is the baby born? And I'd say vaginally, and they all just kind of looked at me like, how did you do that? <laughs> um, but in this case, the, the ridge down the center of his head was already fused and had been while he was born. So that is why his head was very large. That is why it was so very painful to give birth to him beyond the obvious, because his his head would not shrink down at all. When I realized we needed to have a surgery, that our infant would need to have a surgery, I think that's the moment where I just completely went into shock. We have three children all of a sudden, and the youngest one has this special situation where he's going to need surgery. We don't know how we're going to pay for it. We don't know how we're paying for a mortgage. We need health insurance, which we don't have. We have continuation COBRA, which is costing more than our mortgage. It was just beyond. And so what I could focus on at that point was I'm a mother. I need to keep my kids safe. That is my number one. That's what I'm doing.
0: And I think that that is something that I hear in so many tragic stories is that in, in an effort to get through it, we just have to like simplify our brains to like, these are the tasks at hand. And this is what I can control. Like I said, in the the first podcast, we need to stop measuring up our tragedies. A tragic event is a tragic event. And the brain response is the same, regardless of what caused it. And you were already starting on a healthy path by going, okay, I'm just going to focus on the things that I can do.
1: Thank you. I, I did not feel capable or amazing in that time. None uh, of us but did, looking right? back it. Yeah, it was like, I think it was a, a trauma response. The hospital system was wonderful because they it felt like they sort of just picked us up in their big old hospital hands and just carried us forward gently. Over the course of the next few weeks, we had a series of scans and MRIs and all sorts of, there were a couple more x-rays. It was just a lot. In that time, I kept wondering, like, second guessing? Like, is this something that really needs to happen? Am I being a bad mom for just going with it and saying like, oh yeah, this one doctor, but it wasn't just one doctor. Of course, at that point, it was like all the doctors, right? Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I was like, they're telling us that he needs this thing, but what if he doesn't? And what if he goes in there and dies? And it's my fault. I would just hold him and rock him And just watch him as he slept and just think, is this the right thing? Is this the right thing? What am I doing? And over the next few weeks, I watched as his head shape changed. It was noticeable uh, because those bones, those plates were fused already. That meant that the middle part of his head was kind of like this saddle almost. Mm -hmm. And the front and the back were elongating because he was growing, but he had nowhere to go. Part of me was thinking like, well, that's just him. He's just cute. And that's just what he looks like. This is my son. But then I kept thinking like, no, no, this is really scary. Like if we don't get this, I mean, we're going to get the surgery, obviously. But if he didn't have that surgery, if we lived in a place where we didn't have this access, then his brain would be damaged. He wouldn't be able to function Mm -hmm. as he otherwise would have. So we were in this waiting period where we couldn't get it the surgery immediately because he was too little to handle the anesthesia so we had to wait for him to grow big enough to be strong enough to handle it but also not wait so long that his brain was risking damage so it was this waiting period and nine weeks I guess now doesn't sound like that much but it felt like an eternity at the time and I remember as we got closer to the date June 9th it's just always in my mind June 9th that's the anniversary of it as we got closer to that date I just remember thinking, okay, well now there might be a limited number of pictures of this kid. Like every picture that I take is, it could be one of the final ones. Mm -hmm. Like if he goes in there and if he dies in surgery, like that might happen. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a point, my darkest point as a mother, where I sat and I was holding him and I told myself, if he dies, I have to be okay. I have to be okay with that because I have two older kids who need me. Mm-hmm. They need me to be okay and take care of them. Mm-hmm. And just, that was a horrible thought to come to. One that really left me with a lot of damage, I think. I, I mean, at, at the time, I think it was it was something that I had to tell myself to keep going forward. Right. But still now, I I'm feeling the effects of it. And that was almost six years ago. As we got closer to... I would take more pictures of the three of them together, my three children. And there was one that I have from the night before the surgery where I had them all sit on this quilt. Uh, I wasn't quilting at the time. We'll get into that. But it just happened to be a quilt on our floor. And I said, okay, just lay down next to your brother. And I wanted a picture of the three of them Mm -hmm. because if something bad happened, if the worst happened, I wanted a picture of the three of them together. Right. So I have that picture and looking at it now, that's all I can think is mm-hmm. where my mental state was at that time. So it's it's not a picture that brings me joy. It's a picture that makes me really sad. Right. Even though and they're all smiling.
0: I totally get that. I like, if I go into like my story histories on Facebook, it'll be like six years ago on this day. And legit last night I looked And I wasn't even specifically looking for that. I was looking for something else. And uh, it was like six years ago today. And it was just a picture of our garage organized. And it was 17 days after that, our house burned down. And so I look at that picture and it's like all these like pre-fire pictures are very much in a little way, like revitalizing the trauma a little bit, because not only do I, do I kind of mourn a little bit what that was, but also I see it burned. And I'm yeah. sure that that picture does a similar thing for you. It, it's this like, what if he hadn't? hadn't right. Made, what would this picture, the the emotion and the, the the intensity behind that image?
1: Right. It's just it was. It's interesting too to me how a picture you think when you take it, you think that you're just gonna see what you see in the photo. Mm-hmm. Right. I I still do this where I think it's just gonna be I'm taking a picture of this subject and that's what I'm gonna remember. Mm-hmm. But if it's a traumatic moment like that, if it's a high stress moment, you're not just taking a picture of what's in front of you. It's like, you're taking a picture of everything. I always forget that that's a thing. Like (laughs) I was think, I'll take this for later and I'll forget how I was feeling. No, I remember the day of the surgery. I think I was up for, I don't know, I think 30 hours or something for that whole ordeal. I remember every single minute of that day. The night before I knew I had to stop nursing him at midnight because his stomach had to be empty. And I just remember holding him in bed and thinking, okay, he's probably going to wake up at two and he's going to be hungry and I can't feed him. Mm -hmm. And that's sure enough what happened. And I'm holding him trying to reassure him, but he's next to me. He's on my chest. He knows he's right next to the food and he can't have it. So he's upset. He's crying. I'm pacing around the room. It's not time to go to the hospital yet. It's only two in the morning. So I'm walking around the bedroom, just holding him as he's crying. I'm trying to soothe him. Um, My husband ended up holding him because he at least wouldn't be next to the boobs. And then I think at like 3.30, we drove over to the hospital. We were in this bigger waiting room with a couple of other sets of parents and everything was dark and everything was quiet. We were just pacing around this room holding Jack, who at that time had begrudgingly fallen asleep, just pacing around and around the room and making eye contact and kind of doing little nods and smiles with the other parents there. Mm -hmm. And that was really stunning too. I was very aware that, well, this to me was this huge traumatic moment. And it it was, Mm -hmm. and not to compare trauma, but these were parents who, some of them were there for their kids, fifth, sixth, eighth. 16th surgery these were parents who knew the inside of that hospital by heart and didn't want to Mm -hmm. I was humbled to be in their presence Mm -hmm. truly went to a different waiting room it was just us in there it's smaller and this was like right before the surgery we were given this like one size fits all surgical outfit for Jack to wear he was two months old and this outfit was made for kids up to age 5. So it was basically just like a giant <laughs> blanket in the shape of clothes for him. And it was huge. Then my husband held him because I knew that the next step was that we would have to hand Jack over and I knew that I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I was not strong enough to do that. In that moment I felt guilty that I was not strong enough to hand over my baby physically to the mm-hmm. doctor. Um I felt like I let him down in that way. And then The doctors came in. My son had a neurosurgeon and a plastic surgeon. These are also people who live forever in my heart. The neurosurgeon was direct, straightforward to the point. That's what you want in a neurosurgeon, right? She's going to get in there. She's going to get it done. She's not really there to socialize. That's okay. The plastic surgeon was the one. She looked at me and she held my hands and she looked right into my eyes and she said, I know you're worried. But do not worry, because in there, I will be his mother. And I cried and I thanked her. And that will always stay with me, that moment.
0: That's incredible.
1: They, they went over the surgery again we, for like the 18th time. We knew exactly what was right. going to happen. They were going to make an incision at the front part of his head and at the back and then cut out a rectangle of skull like the top middle bit, and then remove it through the incision. And then they said, okay. And up until this point, I had had all these tasks, right? Here's the task. You drive downtown, you sign in, you write your name here, you go in, you get the x-ray, you come back out. Here's the next task. We make an appointment with this person. We it, There were all these tasks and that was it. That okay, all the tasks were done. That, that's it now we're at the surgery and then I just burst into tears
0: For sure. like it
1: was like the floodgates breaking of this is it no more tasks now you just have to feel it yeah Rob handed him over and we held each other and cried and went back to the main waiting room with all the other parents there were way more people there were kids running around the siblings of the kids in the surgery there were all these parents who were <laughs> kind of silently supporting each other, right? Right. We all knew why we were there. Every time anyone made eye contact, it was this like unspoken agreement that this was a really crappy day for all of us. And we were all like holding part of our heart in a different room. And just, there was this tension, but also reassurance somehow of being with other people like that. And there was this wonderful man who uh, was the patient liaison. And this guy was, filled with energy he was just like this ball of happiness who would come in and say okay what do you need what have you got you look you look like you're cold do you want a blanket I'm gonna get you a blanket you need a coffee you need a smile like he was just there to pep everybody up that's awesome And distract them and it was wonderful
0: can we have um, that guy just through like regular <laughs> life
1: right like you're wonderful. having a bad day
0: you need a coffee yeah.
1: here's Are a you- hug here's a smile here's right? a sticker. yeah where's that um, guy every day right he was wonderful there was somebody in the room in the surgery whose job it was to text and update this app that we downloaded to say exactly what was happening in there so i would get a text that would say right now he's under right now they just made the first incision right now like he's doing well this is happening like constant updates. that's
0: amazing wonderful
1: yes i'm so glad that's a thing but they did pull us in. They said, okay, it's done. Uh, we met with the the surgeons again. They said, everything went great. It's all great. They pulled us in. And I remember this this moment where I was, I was still in complete shock, but also the biologist part of my brain was going. And I was like, can I see it? Like, I kind of want to see the, the skull bit that you took out. Like, yeah. I, I know. And they were really creeped out by that. I think they were like, no, that's not a thing we're going to do, which I think is probably for the best looking back, like, also, you know. I'm curious. Like, I, I want to know that. Okay. No, I get um, it because I <laughs> you know?
0: like after I had Issa, I was like, "Can I see the placenta?" And the the nurses were like, "Yeah." What? And I was like, "I I made that. Like, yeah, it's gone. Yeah. I want to see it."
1: And they were like, "I wanted to see it too." It's I totally beautiful. get that. It's like this big tree. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure these anyway. listeners
0: are like, "You guys are weird," but like then there's other people that are like, "Yeah, no, 100 percent."
1: They were. I think a little appalled by that question. Maybe not. I mean, there are scientists too. They're surgeons. It's whatever. Then I went up to see him. He was in this ICU. And that was, that was terrifying mm-hmm. because he was completely gray and out of it and swollen. I held him there. I was able to hold him again. And at that point, you know, i had been awake for, I don't even know how long. Like my brain is spinning and I just wanted to hold him and not let go. Mm-hmm. And finally he woke up and started moaning and they ended up needing to give him more blood. And I have a picture of that time too. Rob took a picture of me holding him and we're both just gray. Everything is gray. Like yeah. my face is pale. I'm wearing a gray sweatshirt. Our son is gray. There's like one line of red going in that's a line of blood going into him. And it's just, wow. and I look like deer headlights panicked in that picture. <laughs> And at this point, it's like all the things were done. All of the tasks were done. We were on the other side of the surgery. And this whole time I'd been focused on what's the next? Here's this thing. And now it was like we were in this free-floating space beyond the surgery. And it's just, okay, now's the rest of your life. And I was still in this full trauma response for what was happening um, and what had happened. And he was fine. And it, for some reason I couldn't like process it yet. Mm-hmm. But I remember I was walking around like making sure, okay, where's the nursing room? Where's the pumping room? Because I, I have never been able to pump breast milk. It just doesn't work. But now we're in a spot where I have to, because there's no way Mm -hmm. I am not nursing this kid. Like there's no way I'm going to lose this. Um, And he can't nurse for the next however long. So he's an infant. You need to support his head, but I can't support it because he's had this surgery. Everything is swollen and it's just, it's, it was this question of like, I want to hold him, but I can't hold him. How do I hold him? And I felt like this, I felt like I, I just didn't know what to do or how to do it. One of the nurses on the floor looked at me and she said, are you a brand new mom? Like, cause it was sort of like this. Why are you freaking out so much? Like calm down. Like she didn't say that, but that was definitely the tone. And I was like, right. no, this is my third. And she was like, it's fine. Like, and I was just like, Oh my God, the most, traumatic thing just happened and you see this every day another thing that happened that I now know was definitely in a trauma space was I had picked out this song and I had it on repeat on my phone right near his head right and it was just this like little piano gentle song and I played it beforehand and I wanted him to know that we were there that was the purpose I wanted him to know that he wasn't alone we were nearby and hopefully he would be comforted by that but Mm -hmm. at the same time. Deep down, I told myself that if that song stops playing, he'll die. Oh, wow. So we had to keep playing that song. we were able to go home the next day, which is crazy. His whole head was swollen, but definitely noticeably more round uh, than before. It was like this instant change where it used to be super narrow. And now it had width to it because it was finally able to like relax. But they send you home with essentially some Tylenol and a Band-Aid. And they're like, okay that's it. You're done. Come in for a checkup on this date. And I was at home holding him after all that, trying to figure out how to hold him, trying to figure out how to nurse him Mm -hmm. and sitting in that same chair again, where I had gotten the news just eight weeks earlier that that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. And I had this specific clear thought, I'm going to stop feeling now. I have to stop now because Mm -hmm. it's too much. Mm-hmm. And I just shut it off like I was able to do everything I needed to do, mm-hmm. but I had to remove myself, like physically, mentally, emotionally remove myself because it was too much feeling. And that was like this active decision that I made. It was very strange. Over the next few months, he had a couple of different helmets he had to wear. I decorated them. That was fun. It was probably about maybe six months after that where I, I realized it wasn't healthy like I, I, I needed to come back online. Like I couldn't not yeah. feel anymore. And yeah. so I had to decide, okay, now I'm going to feel things again. And that hurt a lot. Yeah. Uh, coming back on.
0: I keep wondering, like, yeah. what was the timeline of you and I starting to get to know each other? Cause we had, we had and just for everybody listening, Allie and I had a lot of the same friends. So like we had met briefly at parties before. I, I think I'd actually been to your house for a baby shower baby shower yeah and um but like only had met you in passing and then and I think the baby shower was before the house our house fire was it I think it was a birthday party and it was shortly after our house fire and I can't even tell you whose
1: birthday party it was or what date it was I thought it was post Harvey because I remember after I remember where you and Bill were sitting you were sitting in these in these two chairs in their dining room yep And I remember sitting down next to you and being like, Oh, Hey, it's you. I remember from the baby shower or whatever. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I remember you were both looking kind of dazed, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: understandably because you're still in this trauma space. And you said, um, yeah, like our, our house burned down and we're kind of dealing with that. And I just remember being shocked and, um, and then I think you said something about we were working on helping with Hurricane Harvey and collecting donations, and I remember saying, "Oh, yeah, sign me up. I'll I'll show up." And so that was really the first time that we started getting together was showing up at the donation center, and I'm wearing Jack on my little yeah uh, baby wearing him and <laughs> carrying pallets of things like yeah, it was incredible.
0: And yeah, Jack was
1: wearing helmets
0: um, that you had painted. Yeah. Can we just note that like you, I remember you having this baby and and even during hurricane Harvey relief, you had this baby, like in this, uh, like papoose on your front and (laughs) you, he was just wearing the most adorable helmet. Like he was a fighter pilot for us. It was really hard to do social events because I think we're still in such a state of trauma. We hadn't really started. We hadn't even demoed our house yet by hurricane Harvey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right we just threw ourselves straight into helping other people because it was like you were saying you ran out of things to do Well, we were running out of things to do. And I was like, well, I can go help people. I know what it's like to have all the, what, what remains of your belongings on your front lawn. I know what that's like. I know what it's like for people to drive by and be like, oh, is this a garage sale? And you're like, do you uh, not okay. see the burned house behind in the backdrop? So like, I knew what that was like. So we went full force in a hurricane Harvey relief, but I legit, I just remember they're sitting there and it was taking everything in me to just be there. And I was like, I need to be here for my friend and I need to exist in the space and I need to be okay doing these things. And like, I just remember you sitting down next to me and you being like, hi, (laughs) like in your alleyway, (laughs) it was just, it was, I'm thank you for doing that. It meant the world to me in the moment and the world to me now, but um, yeah, you're just in this like dead space of like I just need to all of my energy energy just needs to go to existing
1: right I just exist right now I'm not really here but I exist yeah Yeah. in that space of feeling numb for so long and then finally deciding to wake up out of that numbness Mm -hmm. that is where I started quilting (laughs) I had decided to kind of come back online uh to feel things again Mm -hmm. And I was up really late one night, obviously feeding him, um, rocking him. I uh, would scroll through YouTube videos and I found this one YouTube series called The Midnight Quilt Show with Angela Walters. And up until then, I had one image in my mind of like the old fashioned 930s style colors and all of that. And I was just like, eh, whatever. It's just a quilt. Okay, fine. People do that. Whatever. I just never even thought about it. It never occurred to me as a thing that could be fun. But here was this woman on this show who was using these bright colors and the music is like upbeat and she's bouncing around saying, hey, let's do this thing and see what happens. And oh, I accidentally cut wrong. I don't care. Let's go. Like it was just Mm -hmm. this fun, vibrant, energy and I just thought wow that looks like fun actually and so the next day I went out to Joanne Fabric and bought some random bits of of fabric and got a magazine that had a pattern in it and went home and I happened to have my mom's old sewing machine that I didn't know how to use and I ended up burning that one out because I didn't even know at the time that you're supposed to change your needle I thought you just like used the same needle forever Uh, (laughs) so (laughs) I made this horrific looking quilt top because I didn't know anything about anything, but I knew that it felt really, really good to take something and cut it up into chaos and then put that chaos back into order. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was what hooked me. And so I, I took that initial one apart. I didn't even take a picture of it. It was just terrible. I took it all apart and I started making quilts and I started with Uh, I used to buy kits and then I started playing more with other people's patterns and I would pick out the fabric and then it just sort of snowballed from there and I just kept thinking well what about doing it this way what about doing it that way over a period of time it's definitely evolved Um, what I'm doing now is very different from what I used to be doing but that same element is still there of taking order into chaos (laughs) sometimes a lot of chaos and then back to order again. And it was this repeated healing motion of putting things back together. And so to me, that's what really got me started on that journey was, yes, I happened to stumble upon that at that time in my life, but also the way that it healed me and is still healing me and is helping me to think in more creative ways that grew from that. To me, what's what's been even much much more of a gift than even that process of creativity of exploring that whole side of me of being artistic in this way what's the biggest gift i've gotten is this whole community that's come out of it because i remember at first i was posting my quilts to facebook and a couple family members would be like oh that's cool okay whatever (laughs) Kind of a lot of quilting. We don't really want to hear about it. They, they wouldn't say that, but that's what my brain is telling me, right? was like, right. okay, nobody cares. It's fine. And I just, I kind of wanted to stop taking up so much space. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, but I, I want to have a place to post them. Mm-hmm. And I want to have this like little personal journal of my journey. Yeah. Um, and I remember you saying, hey, why didn't you post to Instagram? Just like, just make your own little journal on Instagram just for you. Yeah. And I remember saying, I don't know, I don't know how Instagram works. I don't know, like, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's pictures, but then you have words. and I don't know. But I said, Okay, fine. Yeah, like, that's okay. So I started doing that. And then there were like 12 people following me. And then there were 40 people. I was like, why are there 40 people? I don't even know that many people. Like, what what's that? And then there were 100 and then 500. And then it just kept growing. And it was, insane to me that anybody wanted to see what I was doing. First off, what happened was I started to find like-minded artists, like-minded people who saw what I was doing and said they were inspired by it. And in turn, I was inspired by them. And I have now met people who live in all different places around the world who are the dearest of friends. And I cannot imagine my life without these people in it and I can't imagine my life without this community of makers who mm-hmm. all understand that side like we all understand that side of each other when we get together we there's no explanation needed I'm just so grateful for the way that that has gone it it does feel very much like out of this trauma has been this incredible growth
0: so do you think that you would have picked up quilting in the intensity that you did and creating if you hadn't gone through this traumatic experience?
1: It's hard to answer. I don't know. So I've always been a very creative person. I've always liked diving into things. Um, it's always been something, painting, drawing. Um, I keep buying wood-burning kits and then not using. them. That's probably the one that I never never <laughs> took to. There was a summer where I made furniture <laughs> and we still have our coffee table Is I made that. But quilting has been different. And I thought I would stop after mm-hmm. like a year because that's what I do. I, I get into a, a thing and then I explore all of it. And then I, and then I hop out and find the next,
0: I but, remember you saying that like, this is yeah, just a season, like this I, is just
1: temporary. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, mm, I don't think it is. <laughs> yeah. I think it's part of that because, um, is because it's, it's such a wide range of things. Like it's, there's so many different things you can do under this umbrella of quilting. like, And there's so many different ways that it pulls on my brain. Design and puzzling and all of that. And I'll switch between something that's really intricate to something that's much more loose. And then sometimes, like, this week, I just randomly made shoes. Like, I don't know, but they're quilted shoes. Like, it's, right. it's still a quilt. There's so many different things. But also... I think, yeah, to me, it really was that association between this time in my life where I felt completely empty Mm -hmm. and then started to fill it with color and texture. So yeah, to me, those two are linked. I definitely would have done something, but the series of events that, that happened, we were in that space of no income whatsoever for two years. and then with my quilting I didn't intend for this to be a business at all but it mm-hmm. developed into one now and that's been dare I say a bit successful you're
0: allowed to say that it's been very okay. successful <laughs> <laughs> um people like just, know you that sounds <laughs> Which so strange is, it's it is strange but because in my brain you're like you're Allie you're just my friend mm-hmm. but then you go me.
1: I m- don't know what all these people are here for but right yeah. but then like you you go to these cult conventions and
0: stuff, and they know you, and that's very cool, and that's worth celebrating. You get to say it has been successful.
1: It has been successful. And yeah, it's it's grown into this thing that's really filled me up in a lot of ways.
0: That's incredible. And I think I think it's amazing because in the broad sense of trauma, everything feels so out of control and you were taking tiny piece, pieces of cloth and you were controlling them and yeah it's that's very cool in in, a, in an effort to be in control of something when right when you can't control what's going to happen in a surgery room or how your son's skull is growing or any of that it's beautiful
1: as a mother also uh, our parent there is this permanent chaos in my house like mm-hmm. I can clean up the living room and I've got three kids. Like an hour later, it's going to look like I did nothing. Constant dishes, constant laundry, constant pickup, the shoes everywhere. When I make a quilt, it stays made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do it. There it is. It's not going to unmake itself. So that's pretty satisfying too, just For sure. without the whole trauma level. it's It's a very satisfying thing to do.
0: Yeah, it's it's chaos just in regular. It's control of chaos in regular life too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have three boys, and somehow I feel like they could
1: possibly undo a quilt. <laughs> they would figure it out, I'm sure. They would t- usually they would when t- it's Yeah, every time I make one, my oldest comes up to me and says, "Is this for a customer or is this for us?" And I'll, I'll say, "It's for us." And he goes, oh, great. Thanks. And he picks it up and he takes it to his bedroom. And I never see it again. <laughs> they, they they sleep on piles. We live in Texas, right? Well, I'm in Houston. It's hot. We don't need this many quilts. But all of my children sleep on like a pile of quilts, like dragons hoarding treasure. It's yeah. just quilts and books up there. And yeah. Which is sold over into our
0: household. <laughs> like you've made my daughter yes. a quilt and then She's got that, plus her regular blanket, plus another blanket that my dad brought her. And it's just like, how many blankets do you need in Texas heat? It's not this many, but she wants them all.
1: That's awesome. I forgot about that one. Something
0: I'm trying to ask all of my guests, because I think it's an interesting thing to think about is if you had control, if you could go back and he was born with a normal skull and not have experienced all of this, would you?
1: Oh, my gosh, what a question. So for the sake of him, Mm -hmm. not having to go through that, I would say, yes, of course, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want him to go through that trauma. And he was so young that I I mean, I I would be shocked if he remembers it. And we haven't spoken to him about it yet. He's five right now. There are lots of pictures of him with, I've got some with him with just the scars like right after or not even scars yet it's like an, an incision but it's stitched up we haven't looked at those with him yet and I haven't had that conversation with him yet but I will soon probably quite soon so I don't think he remembers it but for his body I have to go through that physical trauma I wouldn't wish that right for me to go through the that journey I grew up a lot during that and I practiced feeling things that I never had felt before. I think it prepared me in a lot of ways for other things. So I wouldn't undo that trauma for myself, but I would undo it for him. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. When COVID hit, we realized, okay, this is going to be a thing that we need to quarantine for. My husband and I looked at each other and it's like, oh, well, we went through 2017. So we'll be just fine. This yeah. Is, and this I mean, we did deal. the same thing.
0: We went through 2017 yeah. with a house fire in Harvey and-
1: Yeah, hanging out in my
0: house I can do that
1: yeah (laughs) um I will say though there was that was some an an indication to me uh when 2020 happened that I still had some PTSD from this but I didn't know I had because when when we first found out that yeah okay there's this pandemic going on the first thought in my head was oh this is when I lose Jack this is when he Mm -hmm. dies and it I didn't realize until that time that I was still hanging on to that. Yeah. Um and it felt like I'd been waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like I'd mm-hmm. prepared so much to for the the moment of him to die and me yeah. to lose him. And it didn't happen, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now it's like, oh, here it is, it's happening now. Yeah. And that was an indication to me, like, oh, I still have some stuff here that I haven't dealt with. Sure. And I still have that a bit. Um when I dropped the kids off at school, because he's in kindergarten now, I drop him off at school and I give him a hug and I still do this with all the kids, but I think more so him. And I wonder if it's because he's the youngest mm-hmm. or if it's because we went through this and I'll never know because that's just our story. But when I say goodbye to him and hug him, I just wonder, is that the last hug? Is somebody going to come in today and shoot up the school? Like, so I'm kind of always poised to wonder if I should be preparing myself to mourn. Yeah. Um, which is a weird place to be in.
0: I mean, you're not alone. I think that's anybody's right. trauma is just, we're, we're always sitting here waiting for the other shoe to drop because it, one did drop, you know, it's like, right. Oh, well we've experienced one. So what's going to keep the other one from falling? Well, you know, nothing does. I mean, it could, but I think we're also walking around way more prepared than most in a mental state because we've walked that road already. I'll never forget. We were moving into our rent house and, you know, people were giving us things, which just felt weird. And a friend of a friend had said, I have storage unit with all this furniture and just come see what you want. And they gave us a mattress and oddly an old singer sewing machine that had been turned into a table, which was a thing that I wanted like my entire life the guy was quite a bit older than us and we were standing on the front lawn of the rent house and they had helped us move some stuff in and he was sharing with me that he was a photographer in Vietnam and he flew on planes and took pictures that was his job which you know at that time i i was just leaving photography as a career and obviously had lost everything in the fire and so we were talking about photography and all of these different things and he was like i i understand like i i have ptsd from that war and And I looked at him and I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. And he said, um, I said, when does it go away? Like, when does it stop? And he's, he was really quiet. And I, like, I just very vividly remember being on the front lawn under the tree. He said, it doesn't go away. You just learn how to manage it. It's there every day and you manage it every day and you get better and better at managing it, but it doesn't ever go away. And I think he, like, he was visibly sad to tell me that, but I'm so glad he did because it stuck with me all these years. And I think that I see that in everybody else that we've interviewed and that I know who have gone through trauma. It, you learn how to manage it. And it in a lot of ways gives you a lot of strength and empowers you to do other things, which is, which is insane, but also very amazing. Allie, thank you so much for sharing and being vulnerable and being a part of this really crazy scary adventure of me putting out this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um any final thoughts, feelings?
1: Well, I just want to say thank you for giving me the space to tell the story. It's one that I kind of hold within myself always.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't I don't talk about it very much. I sometimes almost forget that it happened, but I'm honored to be able to tell it and honored to be on your, your brand new podcast that I am so excited. Yay. for you to have and um i think this is really cool thank you you're welcome thank you so where can people find you you can find me on instagram at exhaustedoctopus octopus uh, my website is exhaustedoctopus.com i chose that name to have nothing to do with quilting because i thought oh i'm not going to be quilting in a little while so, <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> but here you are
1: thank you again i really appreciate this <laughs> i don't know thank you this was awesome
0: Thank you so much for being here and listening to my words and sharing in these stories. I hope you'll join me in coming episodes as we hear the stories of real people and how they became stronger than. If you're excited about this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating or review or sharing a link to it on your social media? These things help podcasters and creators so much. Stronger Than is real stories from real people edited and hosted by me. Chris Sizemore. Original music by Rob McCatherine. If you want to learn more about us and our story, you can find us on our blog, strongerthanfire.com, or on Instagram at stronger than fire.